We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week as I introduce you to a hero, a freedom fighter, a veteran, a warrior, an immigrant, and other inspiring Americans living their American dreams with one common thread. They love America. In this podcast, we talk about the hard things, emotional and physical scars, PTSD, real challenges, and how they not only weathered the storms, but rose above the clouds to become stronger and better. Be assured, we laugh too. What is life without a bit of humor? These stories confirm what our founding fathers believed. America is truly a special place for a special people, and you are part of this great story. We the people, our American story is your podcast. Find yourself in this space every week, a place where American values are cherished and treasured, a place where we celebrate each other, a place you belong. This season, I am honored to collaborate with Operation Enduring Warrior to bring you the stories of their honorees. Operation Enduring Warrior's mission is to honor, empower, and motivate our nation's wounded military and law enforcement veterans through programs ranging from skydiving, public speaking, archery, endurance races, and much more. Our honorees overcome adversity and hardship through innovation, teamwork, and perseverance. Together, our team, our honorees, and our supporters are our OEW family. Operation Enduring Warrior, honoring their sacrifice. For more information, visit EnduringWarrior.org. On September 11, 2001, J.P. McMichael was a first responder at the Pentagon. The events of that day changed J.P. forever and eventually transformed into PTSD. J.P. shares with us how he came back from the brink to tackle those demons. This is J.P.'s American Story. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is J.P. J.P., welcome. Thank you for being here. Honored to be on here. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. I don't know very much about your story. I was telling J.P. before we got started that usually with my guest, if I don't know very much about them... I tried to Facebook stalk them, and even though I did that, I wasn't able to get a whole lot of information about him, and I am really eager to hear this story. So let's begin with your story, JP. You share as much as you want, and how that culminated in bringing you to OEW. Right. So I I will say, if you didn't find a lot of information about me, I'm very quiet for the most part. Um, I've just started in the last couple of years getting out more and more. And um, I've been speaking about um, PTSD and my stuff since 2004, I believe it was, but much more recently, it's like kind of blown up. I've been a first responder. I've been a, I'm a captain with the sheriff's office in Arlington. Now I've been there for 23 years. Um, and back in 2000, I was first resp- or 2001, I was a first responder to the Pentagon on 9-11. And I was down there about 10 or 15 minutes after the plane hit, not knowing that that day was going to completely change everything about me. So I was standing in court that morning, beautiful day, one nice, nice day. It was sunny outside, 
It's one of those days you want to take a mental health day and not be at work. We're standing in court. We're getting ready for a jury trial that we're doing. And somebody came in, one of the attorneys, I believe it was, came in and said a plane hit one of the towers in New York. And so we're like, all right, it's probably somebody had a medical emergency, whatever it was. Um, didn't think much about it. And then a little bit later, came back in again and said another tower has been hit. So we knew at that point something was going on, but we weren't sure what. And we're still kind of, you know, getting our feelers out there, trying to look online, see what we can find, if there's anything that we know about. And it was shortly after that, our radio went off. You could see from where our courthouse is, you can see the Pentagon. Uh, we were up on the 10th floor in the courtroom and you can see the Pentagon from there. And all of a sudden you could see smoke everywhere comes one of the guys comes across the radio and says the pentagon's on fire and then one of our guys shortly thereafter came across and said i was on 110 plane just flew over the top of my car and went into the side of the building and at that point they started shutting everything down i went downstairs got my cruiser and went i was over there like i said 10 15 minutes after the plane hit and just complete cluster um, nobody knew where to go, what we were supposed to be doing. All the people, when you came up to the Pentagon, everybody that was in the Pentagon was running from it. So we're trying to go in. Everybody else is running out. Don't remember this day coming around that corner and seeing where the plane hit. And we were down there for, I think I got home at like two or three o'clock that morning. And it was just nonstop from when I first pulled up there from shutting down roads to doing, we were putting the crime scene up, the tape up around the building. Um, at one point, the audible tones were going off and they were telling us there's another plane five minutes out coming from the south. And nobody knew what it was at that point. And then the audible tone clicked off a minute later and said it's four minutes out. And it went to three minutes, two minutes. And at one minute, they realized it was friendlies coming up from Norfolk, I believe. And those were the two planes that I went that went up and intercepted flight 93. But for years after that, anytime that I heard that audible tone from the radio, I was back at the Pentagon. Um, we thought me and the, the guy who is now the chief of police there in Arlington, we were working together. And when all that was going on, I turned to him at one point. I'm like, dude, we're going to die right here today. I mean, we had never seen anything like it. I don't think anybody had, but just all the confusion, you couldn't get on the radio, um, the bodies everywhere. They had to make a makeshift morgue up off of one of the exits. You had the helicopters were landing right next to where everybody was trying to get people out to get them to the air, to the um, hospitals to get help. And then you had people that had run away from the building that were then trying to come back because they either their car was there or they left stuff in the building. And it's hard to explain the scene of that day. Mid-afternoon, I think it was, I turned around at one point and our judges were there with their sleeves rolled up carrying cases of water for us. People from all over the community were bringing food. And within a couple of days, you had restaurants set up in the parking lot. All these people were coming to help out. And it was the same. I didn't see the New York stuff and um, Flight 93 until that weekend. But it, it was the same there. Everybody came together. Can your mind formulate when you see that kind of destruction? Can you make sense of it? 
I don't even know what that's like to be in that kind of a situation. Yeah, it was more of every, all your training kicked in and they tell you when you're in the academy, like we go through this stuff so that when bad stuff happens, it just, you go autumn and you don't, you're like, okay, whatever, dude, we just want to get through this. But that's exactly what happened. Everything kicked in when we got there, everybody's running into the building, out of the building because they kept the floors. When you see the pictures of it, where the floors are all tilted down, that didn't happen right away. So they were coming over to loudspeakers and telling everybody get 500 feet back because we knew, they knew the floors were not stable and that eventually they were going to collapse. So every time the building would shake, they would tell everybody to get back away from it. So you're going in trying to get people to help to get them out. And then, you know, eventually all the floors did collapse. I think the building was burning until it was way into the morning before they finally got the fires put out. Um, but it was, it was so nonstop. Like I couldn't even get on my phone to tell my family I was okay. The phone, the cell service had gone down. Um, I was married at the time. Couldn't get a hold of my wife. Couldn't get a hold of my family. They knew I was down there. They didn't know whether I was alive or dead. I think I talked to them the next day when I was at work, but it wasn't until then that I had talked to them. My wife had gone to stay with her parents who lived not far from us. Like I said, I didn't get home until I think three in the morning and it had to be back at work a couple hours later. But I'd been on our peer support team starting in 2000. And as time went past from that, I started having flashbacks and I wasn't sleeping and I was angry and I was depressed and I was like, what the hell's going on? You know, and then that stuff with the, you know, if a plane flew low or if those audible tones on the radio went off, I'd be at work and that audible tone would click off and I'd be standing back at the Pentagon again. And I'm just like, what is going on with me? I just kept thinking to myself, I can, I can take care of this. I'm on the peer team. I know what I'm doing. But it kept getting worse and worse and worse to the point where my wife at the time in May of 2003, she was like, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm leaving. And so I think it was the week after police week, she had decided she was leaving, moved out. And that just kind of sent me even down more of a spiral because I was able to go to work and do my job. But when I came home every night, I'd lock myself in a room. I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, and I, I don't blame her for leaving. It went from where I was this happy-go-lucky guy to not, I just withdrew from everything. And so she left in May, May of June of that of 2003. And then in October of 2003, I got up one morning. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And looked out the door. It was, it was another beautiful day. It was sunny outside. I left the door open. I went and sat down on the couch and um, opened up my notebook. And I started writing my note out, just apologizing to everybody and basically outlining everything. Cause I had, nobody knew my wife had been gone for six months. Nobody knew she was gone. My family and my sister's family both lived down the street from me. And they had no idea she had left. She was in grad school at the time. So she was either at work or she was at school. I always had excuses and I mean, that morning in October, I just couldn't do it anymore. Because and, it was one more thing you had to deal with. So you didn't want to talk about it with your family. It was just one yep. more thing to add to your plate. When we military and first responders, we want to be in charge of everything. We're very type A personalities. We hate to lose. We hate to fail. And to me, I had failed. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I, I wasn't going to go ask for help because at that point, if you went and told people what was going on with you, you were done. 
So I wasn't going to do that. And she had left and that was just the, like the last straw with everything. And so I sat down, I wrote the note out, put the gun to my head. And as I'm pulling the trigger back for whatever reason, I saw her. And I realized that if I did this at that moment that she would get blamed for it because nobody knew she had left. Whatever reason I got for that moment of clarity, because I've told people this story and I've had people say, well, why did you get that split second to realize this? And my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife didn't. And I don't know. And I told you about that little, the Jeremiah verse from the Bible that lady gave me in Oklahoma City. And it was after I told that part of the story. Um, because for whatever reason, I was given that opportunity. So it wasn't long after that I finally broke down to my family. I told them what was going on. Up until 2019, I had not told anybody the entire story. You carried that with you all those years. They knew I had attempted to shoot myself, but they didn't know why I didn't. And my mom and my sister absolutely despised my ex-wife because she left. Even though I kept telling them, like, you didn't have to live with me. You didn't understand what she was going through. Did not care. And in 2019, I was fortunate enough where I spoke at the um, International Critical Incident Stress Foundation's World Conference. And I did a class called The Journey. And I talked about um, the PTSD stuff and all the different people that I've interacted with. But specifically, that story was how I started it off was that morning. And as I told the story, and when I got to the point about why I didn't pull the trigger, I heard my mom in the back of the classroom weeping. She had never heard that part. My dad was there. Now my current wife, my kids were there. And the two ladies that did EMDR on me in 2004 were there. What's EMDR? It is when you sit with a therapist and they sit and they move their fingers back and okay. forth and you follow them. It, very weird. I went through a three-day um, post-critical incident seminar with Jim Horn, who was FBI profiler, and Irene Hajasava and Kathy Thomas, who were both psychologists. Irene worked with the responders from the World Trade Center. Kathy worked with the responders from Oklahoma City and then also worked with the World Trade Center. So they had come down to Virginia to do this tri-state area three-day seminars and they did them every month and one of the guys that I had been in rehab I messed my shoulder up working out back in this would have been in 2000 and so I was in rehab with this guy in this pr program called work hardening where you went for eight hours a day and it kind of got you back to where you needed to be for a job he worked for Alexandria at the time and oddly enough he's now one of the um, lead people in the concerns of police survivors, um, survivors of blue suicide group. It's a small world to, to say the yeah. least. So he, he sees me and he's like, something's not right with you, dude. I, you know, something's going on. And so I started talking to him and he's like, look, they're doing this three day seminar. Do you want to come out to it? He's like, I think it'll be good for you. There's no cost. You can bring your family, which at that point I didn't have. And so I'm like, hey, what, I got nothing to lose, whatever, I'll go out there for it. Normally, when they did group debriefing stuff for peer support, it was always one group. So it was either police or fire or sheriff or dispatch. This group, they had everybody in it. And they had the civilians that were IDing the bodies at the Sheraton Hotel. So you had a mix of everybody. 
so I went into this thinking, no, this is never going to work. This isn't what they teach you. They pulled me out probably a couple hours into it to do this EMDR. And Kathy Thomas was the one that did it with me first. And when I came back in the room, they stopped and they were like, it looks like the weight of the world has been lifted off of you. It was the first time I had laughed in two years. They did EMDR with me every day that I was there for that. And then they kept me on as a law enforcement peer for the remainder of the year. And every time we did a seminar, they would pull me out when we were done for the day. And one of them would do EMDR with me. It reframed the way I looked at stuff. And it took, the way they describe it is it, you take a video and turn it into a picture. So where I was, you know, having those smells and the sights and the sounds and all that going on, I didn't have it anymore. It was still hard to watch any video footage. If I thought about it, it still bugged me, still does to this day, but it was much easier to deal with. And between doing that and sitting in that room and listening to everybody else's stuff and realizing that I wasn't the only one that went through this, I wasn't the only one that was going through all this stuff. When I thought I was going crazy, all these other people were going through this. And you had people that were, you know, 30 year veterans in different areas of first response that were talking about the same thing where they almost ended their life and getting to work with Jim Horn. I got to pick his brain every time that we were at these things. And Don Boyd, who was the fire guy there, we were so we worked so closely together and I got to pick their brains and hear their stories and all the stuff that they've been through. And I'm like, man, I'm not the only one going through this. And I got to see each month how some of the people that were in really bad shape, like I was, they went through the program for that three days, they would come back and visit the next time we did it. And it was like, you were like seeing a completely different person. So I got to see firsthand how all this peer support stuff that I was doing prior to 9-11 was benefiting everybody and how it was benefiting me. And so I was like, I got to start talking about this. But every time I went to talk about it, I was being told, you can't talk about this. You can't talk about suicide. You can't talk about getting help. You can't talk about any of this stuff. And I made a decision early on that this was important enough for me that I was going to continue to talk about it, regardless of what was going to happen. And it got to a point, and this was later down the road, it got to a point where I was button heads with one of our higher ups who's no longer there, but they were so adamant about me not talking about stuff and dealing with stuff that I was probably at the point almost losing my job. But I was like, I'm not going to stop talking about this stuff. I'm not going to stop telling people what I went through because I don't want anybody to go through this. And for whatever reason, you see in both military and first response, you see the people that are at higher levels. And it's almost like they forgot what they went through when they started out and when they were on the road and when they were doing, they were patrol people. They forgot about all this trauma and how it impacts people. And we're not, we see the worst of the worst every day. And you can't just like tuck it away in a pocket and walk away and not have it impact you. It's going to impact you. And things started getting better as, you know, after that and talking more. And I spoke at some conferences and was just shocked at the number of people that would come up afterwards and be like, hey, I got a friend that's going through this. It was never them. The women would come up and tell me 
yeah, I'm going through this, but the guys, it was always the same thing. They'd hide in different corners and they'd come up and be like, Oh, I got a buddy that's going through this. I'm like, yeah, I know the same buddy, <laughs> <laughs> but it was the more I talked about it as hard as it was. And it still is to this day. It's very therapeutic and getting to help other people to not have to go through the 20 year journey that I did. If I can get them to a point where they can get some help and they've only got to go through a couple years of it if they're already at that point or if it's something new that just happened and we can get them somewhere to help them quickly even better if that's going to be the thing where somebody says to me you can't do this job anymore i'm good with that i'll go down with the ship for that one to me that's the reason that i was given that moment of clarity jp do you know what that pain is i try to understand that the pain that drives you to the brink of suicide is it the pain of seeing these horrific things is it the guilt of not being able to do more what is that pain my take on it is that you are in such a fog that you can't see your value you can't see any good that you're doing, all you see is that you're a hindrance. You're not eating, you're not sleeping, you're tired all the time. You're constantly reliving this stuff. And even now with all the stuff that I've gone through, all the help that I've gotten, there's still days where this stuff creeps up. To me, you don't ever get over PTSD or PTS, whatever people want to call it. You never get fully healed from it. It's always creeping around back there. You learn to identify when it's coming on and you learn to identify different tactics to use to go, okay, I, it's coming up. I got to do something now to switch this. And I thought I had gotten good at that at one point. And then I had a couple of buddies that passed away and I had one buddy in particular that was a Maryland state trooper. My ex-wife was the one that called me about it, calls me one night. I'm at a store and she goes, did you hear what happened to John? And I said, no, she said he jumped off the Bay Bridge. Oh my gosh. And he had been involved in a, it was a dad that abducted his two daughters and they had been in a pursuit. He got him, got into a shootout with the dad. He ends up killing the dad and he sees the girls in the back seat, runs to them thinking that he saved them. And when he got there, the dad had already shot them. No. And a year later to that day, he was coming across the Bay Bridge with his mom from a therapy session and said, I don't feel good. You need to stop the car. I'm going to be sick. And it was at that very point where that shooting happened on the bridge. And when he got out of the car, he jumped. Wow. And so she tells me this. And that night I got home. And when I went to sleep, I started having dreams where he was jumping off this bridge and then it was turning into me and I was just falling. It was right around the time that that happened with him. I had another buddy that was, he was in the army. He was overseas. Um, he had come to work for us. I think he'd been working for the police department in Arlington for five years at that point. And he ended up getting brain cancer. He collapsed during SWAT training and they find this tumor. And this dude went from being active, running around, I think he was 32 or 33 at the time. And police week rolls around in 2000, I think it was 11. And he had to be rushed in for emergency surgery because the tumor had come back after they had already removed it. 
and at that point they told him it's stage four um we can't do anything else the whole group of everybody helped out with it but i was taking him to appointments and have you ever read the book tuesdays with maury no but i know so what you you're get, speaking of if you get a chance read the book very short you'll knock it out in an hour or so one of the best books ever but he was my maury so riding with him, he would tell me all of these concerns he had, like what's going to happen with my wife who was pregnant with their first child that they had been trying for years to have and what was going to happen with my kid and what was going to happen with my family. And he was telling me all these stories about his family. And so for that eight months, year, whatever it was, I'm getting to hear all these stories. And in January of 2012, his son was born a month later he passed away and i got to do his eulogy at his funeral and i got to tell he had his whole family was in the front row and i got to tell each one of them stories that he had told me what i didn't realize that i was doing was the whole time that i'm helping out with the family and helping with this and helping with that i'm not going through my process that i need to be going through with getting ready to lose my buddy we got done with the funeral. They took him up to Pennsylvania to be buried. And the minute they pulled his casket out of the hearse up there, I lost it. And it was just back downhill again. Before I got into law enforcement, I was a wrestler. And then I did mixed martial arts. And I was going to do a tournament in August of 2012 in Norfolk. Went up and did a grappling tournament up there. I was supposed to have a fight in December up in New Jersey. And so I go do this tournament about a month later, a month or two later, I'm training my neck pops. Ugh. So I'm already like, I'm dealing with the stuff with him. I had got on a very small, it was like 20 milligrams of Prozac, very small dose of Prozac, like nothing, like a baby aspirin. And I got in all kinds of stuff with work because of that because i i told them look i'm on this i'm supposed to tell you if i'm on something so i told them i was on something and then this one person that was there just would not let go of it so i'm dealing with all that i go down there my neck pops and my i lost feeling in my arms for like 30 seconds so i'm That's like all right scary. yeah i'm like i'm no einstein by any stretch but something's not right here so i go to a spinal person First, they send me, they put me in the little tube to do their x-rays or MRIs, whatever they're doing. And when they pull me out, he sends me and he looks at the thing and he's like, we think you have early onset MS. So I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I'm reading all this stuff and I'm like, all of these symptoms are exactly what I have. So of course I'm freaking out. And he sends me to a neurologist to review everything. And the guy comes in the room and he's laughing. And he goes, you don't have early onset MS. He's like, you've got all these spots all over your brain. And it's from being punched in the head too many times. Okay. So I was like, fair enough. So that makes <laughs> so sense. That helped, that helped a little bit. So then they sent me back in, they do another MRI on my neck and they realized like he, the guy told me if this was my spinal cord, this much of it was not severed. So they had to go in and do five, six, and seven. They fused them together you know, they get done and I go back to see him and he goes, you might be able to do jujitsu again. You might be able to roll and stuff and all that. He goes, everything went well, things are looking good. So I go back in for the post-op. I think it was like 10 days later. And he's like, you can't do this stuff anymore. He's like, your neck is still like above that is still messed up. 
but I, I was back at work, I think 10 days after the surgery, I was back in the gym two weeks after doing the elliptical, still going through, I think I was back on full duty a couple months after the surgery. And then a year later, two years later, I lost feeling my arms and my legs I'm standing at a store and on my butt. And so I'm like, all right, that's not good. Call him up. He's like, you need to get in here. So I get in there and he comes back in and it was like, your, your two disc is in the same shape that five was. He's like, you're never going to be able to be a cop again. We don't know that you're going to be able to walk after you have this surgery, but you definitely aren't going to be able to walk if you don't have the surgery. So I did not tell the family. I was just like, look, I got to go have, they got to fuse another disc or something. You like to keep um, things inside, don't you? You don't like to share. Well, part of it, when he told me that stuff, it pissed me off because I'm like, who is this guy to tell me what I can do and what I can't do? And I'm like, I'm not, I, I was, I think I was like six or seven years from retirement at that point. I'm like, I'm not getting the county's not getting out that easily. They're giving me my full retirement. I'm not retiring. I'm still, and I think I told him at one point, I'm like, you don't know who the hell you're talking to, dude. I've been through all this stuff. I wrestled, I fought, I did all this. I, I, you, no. Mm -mm. So they go in, they do the surgery and I didn't tell my wife or my kids. And I was standing in my kids' doorways the night before, just like sobbing. Cause I didn't know if I was going to be able to play with them or not. I didn't know if I was ever going to put my uniform on again. And sadly at that point, that was the thing that bothered me the most. Um, mm. And so I go in, I have the surgery and I wake up as they're rolling me down the hall and the nurse hits me on the shoulder and she's like, all right, get your big ass up and, and walk in there. <laughs> so I was like, all right, we got past the, we got past the first part. <laughs> when you have neck surgery, they want you up and they want you yeah. moving around. So he, I got in there and they had pull out five, six, and seven and fuse two through seven. And he had told me before, he's like, I've never had anybody, any first responder go back to work after this. He's like, your entire neck is fused now. He's like, if it had been any higher, he's like, I can't even go. I can't do anything with that. But I told him afterwards, cause he, I think it was three weeks after that, I went back for the follow-up and he again was like, dude, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to go back. And I was like, I'm going back to work. This is a matter of when it's not, if I'm going back to work, I'm going to be able to do this stuff again. And when I woke up, when she first tapped me on the shoulder, I immediately started moving my neck because a buddy of mine, her husband had had it done and his neck froze. So I was like, I had already read up on all this stuff. I knew what I needed to do. I had changed my diet from when the, the, um, I first lost feeling in my arms and legs again, because I knew I had to almost get back into like a training camp mentality to get ready for this as much as I could. And that was in July of 2015 and the Marine Corps marathon, which I don't remember if it was the last weekend of October, the week before that of 2015, I put my uniform on and went back on full duty that day. I still was having a lot of issues with my buddies passing and the struggling with that because it was like I had, like I said, when I was standing in my kids' doorways and I'm crying about that stuff, the biggest thing that bothered me about it was I couldn't fight anymore and I wasn't going to be able to be a cop. And so I'm depressed all over again. And I'm, I'm keep I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, why am I so concerned about this job? And my son walked in one morning and I was laying in bed, having a little pity party over the weekend. And he's like, why won't you play with me? Hmm. 
you talk about it was like having a donkey kick you in the stomach yeah and i'm laying there and i'm like what the hell am i doing and it was another it was one of those moments again where it was like the light switch got turned on and everything came in and that's where that first book got written because i started um at letting him ask me questions about stuff and he was little at that point he's 11 now and now he thinks he's like 35 but I let him start asking me questions and I decided I'm going to take 30 minutes, regardless of what's going on, 30 minutes every night to sit down with my son and with my daughter. And just that time is theirs and answer whatever questions and listen to their day. So he starts asking me like all this stuff about like, why would I want to hurt myself? What happened on nine 11? Why would somebody want to do that to people? And I, when I'm out speaking, I always say he's like a 99 year old trapped in an 11 year old body because this kid comes up with these questions that you would never in a million years, an adult wouldn't ask you, but he made me start thinking more and more and more. And then with the surgery, we take for granted all the stuff that we do getting up and walking, going, I went and got coffee earlier tonight. That makes me happy to be able to get out of house for five minutes because I busted my knee up again. And now I'm sitting here for another four months, not being able to do stuff, but we take for granted all that basic stuff that we can do and all the things that we're allowed to do. Now, oddly enough, when I came back from the surgery and I was still on light duty, they made me, they put me in a role of the assistant to the ADA coordinator for the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, that's kind of interesting that you stuck me in there, but fitting enough. So as I'm learning more about this, because our department got sued. So I had to work with our ADA coordinator to create training for the entire department. So the more I'm listening to all this stuff and learning all this stuff, it's making me reflect on my life and how fortunate I am to one, not be in a wheelchair or dead, but to be able to be able to get up and walk around, to be able to do my job, to be able to play with my kids. And then he's asking me all these questions and I'm thinking like, why am I so focused on this job? I know you've interviewed tons of first responders and military folks, and our focus is always on our job. And when somebody says, describe yourself, it's always, I'm a cop or I'm a Marine or, you know, whatever it is. And I try to steer people away from that. Now get out there and meet people that are not in your field. Very rarely do first responders have friends outside of their little core group, because we don't trust anybody. When you start talking to people that you wouldn't normally talk to, you get different perspectives on stuff, like an 11 year old. When I went back and got my master's in counseling, I one of the things we had to do in the last semester was find a group to go sit in and watch the process of it. So I found this group, it was like a anti-anxiety body image group. So I, of course, had not read the parameters of it. I just saw I had to go sit in a group. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to go do what I want to do. And so I go to this group and it's at a coffee shop and it's all these 20 somethings and I'm turning 50 this year. So I, I'm in with these 20 somethings and I'm like, this is interesting. I would never talk to these people. But the more I went to this group, I was being exposed to all these other stuff that I hadn't looked at since I started being a cop. And now that the group's kind of branched into two and the young, one of the young ladies was in the group is now my partner. And we do every other week, we run this group and we have people coming from all around the country about wow. this. And it got to be a point where her and the guy running the group at the time, when somebody new would come in, they'd be like, oh, this is JP's done all this stuff and he's written his book. 
And I'm like, y'all need to stop putting me up on this pedestal because I'm more screwed up than you all are. <laughs> it, we can, it's easy to look at somebody and read a bio. And every time I send somebody my bio, they're like, oh my God, you got so Okay, I got stuff. I've done stuff, but I'm still struggling just like everybody else is. When, when I go up and speak, I can go back into that performer mode from being a professional wrestler where you can go into character and this yeah. is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about and I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to be polished and because that's what I need to be to get this message across. But if you talk to me off that stage, anybody that comes up to me, I'm going to tell you I'm going through the same crap, um, different tactics and things so that I know when stuff's coming on to deal with it. And I was fortunate enough, I, I say my son's my best peer support person ever because he's asked me all these questions that made me go, hmm, okay, yeah, I didn't think about that. And I had taken him as in 2019 again, we, they did the 9-11 5K and it's, we're always involved in it. And I took him over to the Pentagon right after that because it's right across the street. And he had never been there. I had told him about it. So I was like, I'm going to take him over so you can see it. And so I'm explaining the benches and walking him around the memorial. And I got to where the plane hit and I just broke down. And he comes up to me. And I think he was nine at the time and puts his arm around me. He goes, all right, dad, I think we need to go home now. So I'm like, what the? This kid's nine. And we get in the car. He starts bawling. So I'm like, great. Now I feel like crap. I'm already struggling with this. Now I feel bad. I got him crying and we get home and he tags on my shirt and he's like, can we have a real conversation now? So I'm like, oh, this ought to be good. So, <laughs> so everybody else goes upstairs and he says, I want you to know the reason I'm crying is because I thought you were going to hurt yourself because I saw you break down there and I saw you crying. We don't, as first responders and, and military veterans, we don't stop to think about that stuff. We know in our head what's going on. We know when we come home at night, we've had a rough day and we just need to decompress, but we don't stop to think about what our wives or husbands, brothers and sisters, our kids, their impression of what's going on is. And so through the conversations that I've had with him, through writing the books, through going out and speaking. And I think you had talked about before we got on here, um, just all the different people you've got to meet. And my philosophy has been that we're all on a journey. We have a path and it's already predetermined what our path is, where it's going. It took me 40, probably 45 years to figure mine out. But along that path, other people's paths intersect with ours. And everybody has something to teach you, good or bad. It's just up to whether you're going to be open enough to learn from it. And some of them you get right at that moment. Other people, years down the road, you look back and you're like, man, I remember this happened. And now I can see how that got me to where I am. And with him, every time we have a conversation about something and every time he's asking me questions, he always makes me reflect on so much stuff. Now that I'm out speaking on this stuff and doing this, when I'm at work, I also, I talk a lot about leadership. I also talk on ADA stuff around the country and it all kind of intertwines. I never realized that I was covered under ADA because of PTSD or my neck, but now I know all this stuff. And now I get to teach. I started two years ago teaching at Marymount University. And that just kind of fell in my lap. The person leaving was like, hey, do you want to take over this? 
and you talk about scared to death when I walked into a room full of college students, not knowing what I was going to encounter, um, and especially this past semester, because they gave me freshmen. Usually I'm teaching juniors and seniors. This year I got freshmen. But these kids that were in this class, the last two years when 9-11 happened, texted me all day long to see how I was doing, to make sure I was okay. The first day of class, I tell them my story and about how I almost ended my life. And these kids reach out to me throughout the semester when they're struggling with stuff. And I continually hear stories about other professors that they have where they're not interacting with them. They're just like, here's your assignments. And you have such a great opportunity when you have the platform to speak to people, to share your story because you don't think about how much it impacts other people with oew with their um the warriors voice program which when i got into that they they were immediately like hey we need to get you into this i've been so blessed by the people that i've met and the people that i've been able to reach out to i mean i had one of my students she texted me it was like one in the morning last year and reading it, I knew she was not in a good place. And I started texting back and forth with her and was able to work with her other professors and the counselors and get her back to where she needed to be. And she ended up graduating. And she told me after the fact, I reached out to you because you opened yourself up to us. When I hear about different, whether it's professors or first responders or military people where they keep everything inside, it angers me somewhat, but then it makes me sad because they don't realize how much of an opportunity they're missing to be able to, you know, by a simple thing of sharing your story, because nothing, I, I don't do anything spectacular. I'm not an Einstein by any stretch of the imagination. Here I am. This is me. It's laid out on the table. Um, if I can help you, great. If I can't, at least I tried. But by sharing that about me, and people seeing that I was at that point where I had that gun to my head to now where I'm writing books and teaching college and we're getting ready to go. I think in May it is right now. We're getting ready to go out and do these two-day resiliency conferences around the country. All the stuff that I have been blessed to be able to do just in the last two years, the people that I've been fortunate enough to meet all from telling my story. It's kind of sad that other people don't do that and they don't see the benefit of it. And I'm hoping at least with the kids now at the college that I'm able to get them to start doing it at a younger age and seeing the benefit of doing it and that kind of thing. So I have a few questions here for you, JP. Mm -hmm. I have probably three or four of them. I am yep. wondering if you then did get your pension or if you left early and this might be a hard question, but maybe not. Hindsight is 2020. If you had to go back, would you choose a police officer as a profession? And then how did you come across OEW? So I'm still with the sheriff's office. I have not left. Uh, fortunately for me, there was plenty of times where I contemplated it. The guy that hired me 23 years ago did my background and everything. He did 27 years, retired, and then came back as our chief deputy. And when he was getting ready to come back, I was at a point where I'm like, I need to get out of here. 
I just, this job's not fun anymore. And he like breathed new life into me and he's, he's almost like my accountability partner. So we're always talking about stuff. How can we do this? How can we do that? We're constantly asking each other, like what's going on in our life. We take our daily trips to Starbucks and kind of vent to one another um, and just kind of feed off of each other and help each other. So I'm still there. I haven't got my pension uh, again. I got one more year that I can get Close. that. So it's there. I can see the lights at the end of the tunnel. If I could go back, I would not change a thing. Um, as odd as that may sound, everything that I have been through, even the worst of stuff has gotten me to where I am at this point. Every year I try to take four little weekend trips where I turn everything off and just sit and reflect on stuff. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing because of that. I've, I've had bad days as a in law enforcement and I've had a ton of really, really good days doing police week every year. Um, I've worked at for the past 20 years and getting to meet those families and seeing those kids. That's kind of the point where I recharge my batteries for the year, but I've had a, so many good experiences and even the bad stuff. Like you look at the day when I was sitting there with the gun to my head, there was a reason that that happened and it's all got me to where I'm at. OEW came about um, because I saw Chris Thorpe last two years ago, two years ago now, I think it was May-ish, might've been April, May, June, somewhere in there. It was sometime in the spring, summer. He started doing these videos where he was doing these weighted rucks and he was carrying a pound of weight for every officer suicide. So he's walking along and doing these videos. I'm like, this dude is going to get crushed by this weight <laughs> because we had had 237 suicides the year before. Wow. I'm like this guy is crazy. But I'm, I started watching him every day and he would do these short little videos. And I was like, man, this is pretty cool. So I emailed him. I said, hey, do you, you know, you're going to get killed under this weight. Do you mind if I start carrying a weight with you? And he goes, no, go ahead. So I start carrying a weight. And I think at that point it was like 60 something. So he calls me and he was like, why do you, why do you do this stuff that you do? And I said, because I want to help people. And he goes, that's bullshit. He goes, this is there's something in it for you. And I'm thinking to myself, like, who is this dude? I don't even know who this guy is. And he's questioning about all this stuff. He was one of the first people to call me out on stuff. And so we're doing these weighted rucks and he would, he would call me sometimes and be like, dude, you talk way too much. He's like, these are supposed to be like five minutes. You're going into like 45 minutes. I'm like, whatever, dude, just leave me alone. Don't be a hater. <laughs> we get to the end, I think it was November ish. And it was, I mean, the weight was ridiculous at that point. So he sees me one day, I'm not carrying the ruck. I'm shooting a video and I'm walking around. So he called me. He's like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing? He goes, you're not carrying a weight. And I'm like, it's too much. It's too, I said, I can't carry this all by myself. And he goes, okay. He goes, I just wanted to, I just wanted to know why you were doing it. So of course I feel like crap. He has a way of calling you out, but not like he makes you think about stuff. And then afterwards you feel like crap because you let him down. So he goes on and does this video and he's like, finally, somebody got it. He goes, I've been doing this for this long. And all I wanted was for somebody to say, you can't do this by yourself. I need help. 
and I had gone on, I, I can't remember it was before or after he did that, but I got on and I was like, all right, I've been bullshitting you guys. I hadn't been carrying a weight for the last week. I can't carry this stuff by myself. So I was like, if you guys can carry a pound, two pounds, five pounds, whatever, because we were going and doing the weight and then we'd shoot a video every day and post it on the website. So I was like, if you guys can carry any amount of weight, carry the weight and shoot a video and put how much weight you're carrying. So then he does his video and then all these people start carrying this weight. And some people, it was a pound, some people, I mean, you have people that were injured that were out there doing it. And we had one guy and I cannot remember his name, but this crazy dude carried every pound of that weight. I mean, he's a big dude. It didn't matter. It was raining, snowing, whatever his dude was carrying all the weight. So you had all these different people telling stories. And that was where I first saw Jeremy charlo because he started doing them and we had all these people not only carrying the weight to help out but telling their stories and then other people were telling their stories because of what they were doing and me and chris went on um, blue help was doing a show on facebook live at the time we went on there and the guy that did the show he does a weighted ruck for a period of time during the year so he was talking to us and we were, you know, clamoring back and forth about our conversations that we had and how he called me out and all this stuff. And he calls me and it was shortly after that, he called me and he goes, we're going to have a call because Eric Schmitz, who was the guy at that point that ran OEW had ended his life. And I had never had the opportunity to meet this guy. And Chris calls me and he's like, dude, I want you to be on this call. We're going to do this call for the entire team. So I get on there and there's like 75 people on this call. And you would have thought that it was a family gathering. I mean, this group, because he told me, he's like, I want you to be on here. He had made, I was made an honorary, I believe two weeks before that. And it was like everybody in this room, all they did was tell stories about Eric. And how Eric passing had impacted them. And it was like, you never saw anything like this before. And I don't remember the gentleman's name. I told you before when um, I was watching Jeremy and this other guy on the show, that kind of got thrust into Eric's role. He got up and he was like, if this can impact Eric, who spent his entire life focusing on preventing suicide, it can get to any of us. And I want you guys to get a battle buddy. I want you to reach out, um, start talking to each other when you're struggling, pick up the phone, start doing these buddy checks. And so we got done and Chris called me the next day and was like, so what did you think? And I'm like, dude, I'm just blown away by this because I've done peer support for years. I had never seen anything like this. I knew more about Eric and felt like I knew him sitting on that call. And I wish I had had the opportunity to meet him. But I knew at that point that I had made the right decision to go and accept his offer to become an honoree with that group. Um, and then I start watching these videos where they're helping. They have the mask team that goes out when they're doing these courses. And these guys are wearing gas masks and helping these people through here. And they're helping amputees get through shooting courses. And so I'm showing these to my son. And I'm like, man, this is awesome that they're doing this stuff. And Chris would ask me like, Hey, what, what do you want to be involved in? And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. So Jeremy had reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and was like, dude, we need to get you out 
speaking and get you out talking about this stuff and telling your story. And I saw him, he spoke on a show and told his whole story. And I was just like, I mean, I knew some of it, but I didn't know the whole thing and was completely blown away by it. And he was another one when we were doing the weighted rucks and he was doing them. He was so raw about everything. Like you knew when he was having a bad day, you knew when he was struggling, you knew when he was having a good day and there was no, you know, trying to sugarcoat anything. And that was one of the big things that I got from these guys was be real, be yourself. If you're struggling, tell people you're struggling. If you need help, ask for help. Don't sit there and be the tough guy in the room. And Chris was the same way. He would get on there and he would talk about anything. It didn't matter what it was. And you could tell if he was having a bad day, he'd tell you, this day sucks. I'm not happy. I don't want to be carrying a stupid weight. And they, they were so realistic and I hadn't seen that. And so as I started going around and I would tell people that we were doing these, the weighted rucks. And so people would start watching the videos. And by the end of the year, I think it was new year's Eve. I was like, I am done with social media. I don't want to make another video. Hey, I, I'm so tired of talking. So I took off last year. I think I may have done one here and there, but for the most part, I just steered clear of it. And then course covid comes along shuts everything down and that was at the point where things were really starting to pick up for me um, speaking wise and everything is getting canceled but i went in last year i spoke at again at the world conference on crisis and trauma and it was all virtual and probably a week or two later lady from san diego reaches out to me and she's like can we do a facetime call and she goes you're the only one that's doing this like this research with PTSD and kids and the impact on it. And so I call her and she's like, look, I want to, um, I want to do this two day resiliency thing. And I want this to be built around you and Alan Cates who wrote cop shock. We're going to bring in, um, Frank and I cannot remember his last name now. And he's probably going to smack me when he, but the proves the principal Columbine when the shooting happened. Oh, wow. And then we've got several other folks that are now coming on board with this. And so I'm just, I'm sitting in this Starbucks and she's telling me this and I'm like, why is this lady doing this stuff for me? I want to help you with your marketing. I want to help you with this. I'm going to show you all this stuff. And, and this lady like poured so much of herself into me and gave me all this advice and introduced me to all these people. Jen Bricker is another one of you have ever heard of her. It is one of the most amazing stories. She was born without legs. And her parents left her at the hospital in Illinois and an older couple adopted her. And they told her growing up, the only thing you can't say in our house is I can't. They said, you can do whatever you want to do. And this girl loved gymnastics. She loved Dominique Mosciano. This was the time where she was the Olympic champion. So I'm watching this video and I'm thinking, why is she sending me this video? I mean, it's cool and all that she's doing is because she ended up becoming the state champion in Illinois in gymnastics with no legs played softball, basketball, and I'm watching these videos and I'm like, holy crap. So she said at 16, she goes to her mom and she goes, what do you know about my family? And her mom goes, you might want to sit down. And she's like, mom, I don't have any legs. I'm always sitting down. So I was like, already I'm in love with this person. She's got the great sense of humor. But she said, your last name is Mosciano. No. Her sister is Dominique Mosciano. 
And so I'm just sitting there and I'm like, it was the same. I played the video for my class and I didn't tell them and they were all like, are you kidding me? And so I played this for them at the beginning of the semester. I get a call. It's Jen Brooker. She had signed books for my kids. She was coming out here to do this show, which ended up getting canceled because of COVID. Canceled the show like right before it was supposed to happen. So I go out and have dinner with her and her husband. And we ended up talking for four hours that night. And everything that they talked about was how God had put them here. God had given them this. God had put them in these positions. We wrap up at the end of the night and she's like, whatever I can do to help you out, let me know. So she comes the next week to speak to my class. Just told them, I said, y'all don't want to miss this class. Be here for this class. So they walked in the room and all of them, like their faces just lit up because I just showed them the video again a couple of weeks before. When you listen to her, like, she does not look at herself as disabled. She can do anything. And I'm talking to her and I've got this, I don't know how good you can see it, the 22 a day bracelet. Oh, yes, I see it. There's a little gleam, but I can see it. So it's 22 a day for the um, military vets yeah. that complete suicide. And inside, yeah. I've got it etched in memory of Eric. So she sees this while I'm at dinner and she's like, what's that bracelet about? And I'm telling her and her husband's like, oh, my God. He goes, do you know Chef Andre Rush from the White House? And I'm like, no. Well, <laughs> why would I know the chef at the White House? So he's like, I've got to introduce you to this guy. So a couple of days later, I get a text from this guy. I'm like, oh, and then Jen's on there and we're talking back and forth. This guy gets up every morning and does 4,200 or no, 2,200 push-ups a day. And he was a chef. I don't think he's at the White House anymore. He was a chef at the White House a while back. The guy is built like a professional bodybuilder and he was a veteran and say, she goes, you guys have a very similar story. And of course we hit it off immediately. So just out of all this, like bumping into people and seeing, having somebody hear me talk. Now I'm going to be going out with Alan Cates, who's going to be speaking at this conference, that cop shock book. That was the book that I read when I started doing peer support and guided me in everything I did with peer support, having these opportunities from bumping into these people and all this stuff. It's just amazing how everything kind of intertwines and brings you to where you're supposed to be. And I think when we get out on the road in May and start doing these two day conferences, we're going to impact so many people. And it's not just first responders. We've had military groups that are asking for us to come do this government groups, all different places. And if you had told me two years ago, I'd be doing this, I'd have laughed at you. If you had told me 20 years ago when all this first happened, I'd have laughed you out of the room, especially somebody telling, you know, somebody told me I was going to be teaching at a college because I hated school. And now I'm teaching it and just it's greatest thing ever. So JP, is this your baby then? What's that? The two day the, thing? Yes. No, that was all. And I wish I had the book around here. Yeah, what's what's the name of it? Is that the name or what? No, the, the name? name of it is going to be Thrive, The Road to Resiliency. Jean Steele is the person that reached out to me and her group is called Happy People Win. Jean Steele is one of the happiest people you would ever meet. And she's very eccentric. She's written several books on resiliency. And she was just like, I had this idea. I want to do this. And I want to bring you guys in. 
And so the second day will be me and Alan and Frank. The first day is going to be local responders speaking. And then they're looking at having all of us being on the stage at the same time as we're speaking. So it's almost like every presentation will be different because we're going to all be interacting with each other. And so we've been talking about this stuff. And initially it was supposed to be starting next November or this November. Now we've been talking about this since October, I believe of last year. And it just keeps getting moved up. And it's like, every time we get on a call with each other, like something's happened that's caused this to get closer and closer. Like this needs to happen. She was the one that has created this entire idea and has brought us together. And then out of that meeting, Jen and meeting chef rush and having like Jen meet my class. And she's helping out with one of my students wants to be a journalist. So she's going to let her come and interview her when the show kicks off all of this stuff kind of going around and all these paths that have crossed just in the last two years when back in COVID started to in 20 beginning of 2020 and can't of even 2019. remember anymore right so I think it was in 2019 it was right before all the COVID stuff started in October I went up and did it was when we were doing the weighted rucks I went up to the Blue Ridge and did a video about how I was going to, have to close my company down because I didn't, it was 2020, I guess, because it was like, I didn't have any money coming in because we couldn't go speak anywhere. And I was just at wit's end with everything. And then I speak last year and Gene reaches out to me with this idea. And right before I had gone to speak at this conference, I had found a video sitting at work late one night and found a video with Tyler Perry. Mm where he was at Joel Osteen's church. And I don't listen to either one of them, but I'm like, all right. I'm like, why is Tyler Perry at Joel Osteen's church? And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to listen to it while I'm sitting here. And so he talked about how he had tried to get into doing plays and how all this hardship. And every time he tried to do something, it was like he failed over and over and over and over. And he said that um, the last opportunity where he was like i am not doing this anymore he had already booked this thing so he went and did it and he's like i got there they said the company that was supposed to be buying this theater place wasn't going to buy it now so they were changing it back to the original name which was the tabernacle it was a church it was an old church he said i'm in the back and i'm getting ready and i'm grumbling and I'm not happy. And I'm like yelling at God about why, you know, I've been working so hard at this and why haven't you given me the opportunities? You never answer me when I ask you stuff. And so I got this plan aside and I'm like, man, that sounds like me. That sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. And he gets up, he said, he gets up and he goes, all, all I heard was shut up. And he goes, when God tells you to shut up, you listen. So he's like, I had this urge. I needed to get up and look out of this window in the back of this dressing room. And he said, there was a line of people around the corner. And he said, I've never not sold out a performance since that night. And he said, it was like I had been brought, everything had to lead to the tabernacle to perform at this church. And he said, I had asked God over and over and over again for years for all this stuff and never got it. And I kept thinking he wasn't there. And he goes, I see it as God challenges you to see are you that determined to do this or not? I need to hear that. That's good. 
I'm in my office and I'm sobbing because I had scheduled these last couple of events. That one that I spoke at was included. I was so frustrated because this, when I started talking about all this stuff, th this is my passion. It's what I enjoy. It, what's, it makes me feel good. When I go to teach, it opens up doors with other stuff. It's the one thing in my life that I really don't ever want to lose. That This is what I think is the reason that I got that moment of clarity many years ago. And as he goes through and he keeps talking about the stuff, he said, and he goes, and anybody that tells you this country is not the greatest country ever, he goes, all the nonsense you hear on the news and everything else, he goes, let me tell you this last little bit to show you that this is the greatest country ever. And he said, it was meant studio. to be JP. We were supposed to talk today, right? <laughs> it was. When you watch this, the hair is going to stand up on your arms and your neck. He, the studio he owns now is an old military base. When they were clearing out everything on the military base, this they found a letter that was hidden in this desk. And it was written by a 13-year-old boy, it was an African-American boy back in, and it was a Southern, I forget where the studios are, but Southern studios, Southern army base. And it was written to the future. And this kid said, one day, somebody that looks like me is going to run this and they're going to oversee this and they're going to change the way things are done and basically make the world a better place. And he said, they brought this letter to him. And Tyler Perry's reading this letter and he realized this letter was written six months after he was born. He says, six months after I was born, this little boy wrote this letter to me so that I would find it. And he said, this base was built by a Confederate general. And if you don't think this is the greatest country in the world where me as an African-American man can now say I own this base that was built by a Confederate general. I don't know what to tell you. And this kid that wrote this letter to me six months after I was born for me to come in and take over this and get this letter. And he said, there's only, there's one way in and one way out. And he said, we buried a hundred Bibles under the entrance and under the exit. And he said, people will come in there and they'll be like, something's different about this place. I can't figure it out. But I sat there and I've watched that thing probably five or six times since then. But I had told Jean after she reached out to me, I'm like, this was almost like it was telling me you were coming because that thing that I spoke at was one of the last things I had scheduled to do and I was done. And then out of the blue, she calls me and I'm sitting in a Starbucks and I got my eyes watering up because she's telling me all these ideas she has and what she wants to do and how what I'm doing is so important and people need to hear it. And then getting to find out that I'm going to be sharing the stage with this guy that wrote this book that was my guide for years. And with Frank, who was at Columbine when this happened. And then I come to find out Frank stayed on for 15 years after this because he wanted every kid that was in school in that district to graduate under him. And then the more stuff opening up, we had the, you know, I spoke in Oklahoma a couple months ago and. When I went there, I got to meet like a bunch of these people, Doug Monda being one of them, that the guy is, I've followed him for I don't know how long now and getting to sit in his class and hear his story and then have him come sit in my class 
and tell me how great it was like you would never in a million years you couldn't have told me that was going to happen sam poor uh, one of the widows lost her husband from california highway patrol in 2018 i believe we started talking because we're we're on we're facebook buddies but i had not met her in person i didn't know she was going to be there we started talking about stuff and we're coming up now with an idea for a children's book to help kids and families when they lose an officer or first responder or a veteran to suicide um, and how that can you know just little tips and stuff on things that they can do to help them better understand that and you had asked me about like in my thought process would i change anything and at the memorial service in 2019 i got to escort a widow for the first time they recognized officers that had died by suicide at the police memorial and i was asked to escort the widow and her family up the place there rose at the memorial and she was telling me while we were sitting there she's like my kids ask if he ever wrote a note and if he said he loved them in the note and he didn't he had written a note but he didn't say anything about that and i looked down the aisle at her and her kids and i was like i can't tell you much i said but i can tell you from sitting in that position in 2003 that there's no way your husband was in his right frame of mind you're in a fog you, you don't see your value. You don't see your purpose. You see yourself as a hindrance. And I said, there's no way he could have looked at you and your kids and not, not wanted to do that if he was thinking straight. And she, she's gone on to like start all this stuff up in New Jersey to get all these laws changed to benefit officers that have PTSD and to get families benefits when officers die by suicide when we're walking on that path and all these people are intersecting us, we, we have to be open to learning this stuff and opening our mind up to these things because you never know, like the person that you cross paths with could be that person like Gene was to me, that's going to give you this opportunity. That's going to change your life. Or it might be the person like the guy, um, Kevin, and I can't think of his last name that jumped off of the golden gate bridge. They have a Netflix special about him lady walked up to him and he was thinking to himself she's going to ask me if i'm okay and she asked him to take a picture of her on the bridge and he took the picture and he turned and jumped after he handed her a camera back and he's only he's one of only eight people to survive that jump and he said the minute my feet left i wanted to live oh yeah you know i had said earlier that I get asked by people like, why did you get that moment of clarity? And my son didn't, or my daughter didn't, or my husband didn't. How many people got that moment of clarity that he did from that bridge and realized it too late. And it's all because like I tell my students in society, now we're so quick to walk around with our phone in our hands and paying attention to ourselves and being self-centered. And instead of asking how are you doing smiling at somebody we're quick now you see in society everybody's quick to argue about stuff nobody wants to have a conversation anymore and we've isolated people more and more even you know when you look at the numbers with the veteran suicides and the police suicides and first responder suicides it's not okay to talk about stuff and until we make it okay to come and ask for help, we're never going to see those numbers drop until we get past the point that we're sending our men and women out 
whether it's home or abroad, to see things and to do things that no human being should be asked to do. When our leadership realizes this and goes, okay, maybe they need help, that's when this stuff's going to start going down. I'm fortunate now, I talked about the struggles I had with the department before, but now I'm fortunate because we're starting a health and wellness program that encompasses our police, fire, sheriff, and dispatch in Arlington County. And I'm heading up the sheriff's section of it. And getting to see the entire, like the shift in mentality, I, my sheriff allowed me last year to go to all the roll calls and tell my story. And to tell people what I went through and that we're going to be here. If you need help, we're going to be here to help. And she just did roll calls for all the staff in December and told them about like the program and what we're doing and what we're working on. And she made it a point to say that Captain McMichael is, this is very passionate for him. And there's nobody else in this department that would have been better to select to do this because this is such a passion for him to do. And then I got to see all these people when I told my story that were like, I didn't know you went through that. I had one lady came up and just hugged me and she was bawling her eyes out. We focus so much on ourselves and what's going on in our lives that we walk right by people that are so visibly, they're struggling. And we need to create an opportunity for people to say, I need help, especially in our fields, because you, you can't do what we do day in and day out and not be impacted by it. Even the hardest, grittiest people are impacted by it on some level, and it all overflows to our family. So hopefully, as we're moving into this year, and hopefully all of this craziness that's going on in this country will start to shift to a better direction, and we will start to see that you know, there's people that are suffering. They said that because of the quarantine, this will be great for people that are introverts. It's been horrible for them. Mm. The suicide rate has tripled that you see our kids that have been home have had no interaction with their friends. They have all kinds of anxiety and stress and depression. And what are we doing for it? So hopefully out of more people talking and more people telling their stories, it will open up more opportunities for people to be able to find help and be able to go and learn just little tiny things to be able to, to better adapt to this stuff. JP, will you read a little bit of one of your stories? Tell us a little bit about these books that you've written. Okay, so the first one, why won't you play with me? I think the glare is going up. That is about the conversations that I had with my son about my PTSD and trying to help him understand what I was going through in terms that a kid would understand so that he knew that it was because of that, not because of him. And then I did especially you, which is about body image and anti-bullying. And that came about from listening to my kids come home from school and talk about, you know, why is this kid this way or that kid that way? And the couple of times that I've been able to go in and have lunch with them and stuff before all the COVID stuff hit, um, and just watching the kids interact with each other. And I forget, I was watching something last night and they said, if we could, um, if we could look at the world through the eyes of a child, because you go into this like elementary school, which is when they were in elementary school, when I wrote this, they don't look at any of this stuff. They just want to be friends with people. They want to play with people. They'll talk to anybody and they don't look at 
skin color. They don't look at ethnicity. They don't look at disabilities. They just are like, oh, it's a kid. I want to go talk to him. But I knew at some point they would start to go, well, you know, I may be because the, the young lady that I run the group with in Fairfax had eating disorders. And several of the people that have come through have suffered with different disorders and stuff. And they'll talk about how, you know, I sat at home and I was like, oh, I'm getting too fat or I've got to work out more. I don't have six pack abs or whatever. So at some point, whatever that is, there's that shift from, I just want to be happy and have friends. To now all of a sudden I'm looking at myself going, oh, I'm not good enough for this or good enough for that. So that's how that came about. Social media does not help. No, social media is a double-edged sword. Yes, it is. And then daddy's little girl came about because my daughter was angry that my son had a book with him because you can see. So the girl that did the illustrations for this, she made him look like my son. So she was angry that he had a book and she did not have a book. So competition. Yeah. So I wrote that about like from the time she was born, imagining the different milestones to her getting married and giving her away and that kind of thing and all the the stuff that a dad and a daughter would go through. So I did that one and I've got three other books that are sitting on the back burner that will eventually get put out and I'm working on a book about my journey and all the different people that I've met. That'll be the first adult book. That'll I'll get that done this year and get that out and then I'm working on a book about like getting out of your own head, like just basic stuff to do like going hiking or different things that I've learned through Boulder Crest in different areas, because we always think, oh, we got, there's something so, you know, that we try to make everything difficult and it doesn't need to be, you know, if I'm struggling with something with PTSD, I change the song that's on the radio and things are great. If I know if I got a song that makes me happy, I can flip that on changes my mood instantly, but everybody wants to make everything this huge detailed thing and it doesn't need to be you have a lot of eggs in your basket how on earth are you juggling them all when you sit at a point where you're getting ready to end your life and you don't you realize how precious it is Mm. and you realize at least i did over the years that i'm able to do so much more than i have been doing and this stuff for me this is this isn't work going to the department every day that's work this is not work teaching is not work. I absolutely, I I love this stuff. And when I get to go out and speak while I hate public speaking, when I get done and I get to talk to people and hear their stories and people will come up and be like, Oh, I'm going through that same thing. And I didn't know that makes all of it a thousand times better. If I could do this full time, it, that would be better than winning the lottery for me. And hopefully that'll be coming. Will you choose one of those stories and read it to us, please? Okay, so I will go with the why won't you play with me because that was the one that started all this. Okay. So it says, sometimes mommy or daddy may not want to play. Sometimes they may be sad on a beautiful day. Sometimes they may get scared by loud noises, a boo, or the fireworks you wish they would watch with you. Sometimes they may get angry when you did nothing wrong. Little one, I promise you, it isn't you at all. You're the light of their life, their greatest joy, but right now they aren't themselves, kind of like a scared little girl or boy. Sometimes mommies and daddies see some very bad and scary things. Sometimes mommies and daddies, just like you, have some bad dreams. Sometimes mommies and daddies cry. I know it's been hard to believe, 
but keeping people safe isn't as easy as it seems. I know you want to play, and trust me, they do too. They would do anything to be happy, just like you. For the moment, they are sad, but soon this will pass like the clouds in the sky, clearing the way for the sun to warm the grass. Post-traumatic stress, that is what this is called. It makes mommy and daddy act different, not like themselves at all. Soon this will pass. Remember, this is true. For little one, when it does, they will run and play with you. For now, give them hugs and tell them I love you. While it seems they are sad, they surely hear you. You're the apple of their eye, the very center of their heart. If they could, they would tell you that part. I know you want to play, and trust me, they do too. Soon this sadness, like the clouds in the sky, will clear, and the sun will come out and shine. Until then, little one, remember this is true. You're the apple of their eye, and they'll always love you. Right now, little one, I know it's hard to understand. It isn't you, and it has never been. You are the light that shines for them, your smile, your laugh, your hugs, and your grin. There's no one as important as you. Never forget that, although right now, you may not feel it is true. The job they do is very tough. Keeping people safe can surely be rough, but their heart, it will always belong to you forever and ever, little one. This is true. So Amazon being the gem that they are, they were like, this book is not long enough to publish. So I had to put, and you probably can't see it there. Oh, yes, I see it. So I had to make a workbook out of the back and I did a, what I called the love play commitment. And it's basically saying, I, whatever the person's name is, I'm committed to making time to play with you when I can't, I'm committed to explaining to you why I can't so that you understand how I feel and what I'm going through. Love and to fill that in. When I'm speaking, I tell people, you know, if we have somebody that is suicidal We'll have them sign an agreement saying they're not going to hurt themselves. And majority of the time, for whatever reason, them signing that paper commits them to not hurting themselves. And first responders, military folks, we are horrible. We'll plan stuff with our kids, work calls. We run off and we're like, oh, mommy or daddy's got to go to work. They're just like mom and dad doesn't want to be around me. So taking that extra couple minutes to say, look, I wish I could do this, but I've got to go to work. Let's plan another time to do something because we plan, you know, you put in your schedule, all these meetings and everything else. And we hammer those into the schedule, but how many people have you opened their schedule up has stuff on there for their family or time on there to spend with their kids. So I try to hammer that message home that you need to schedule that time, especially with your kids just like you do these meetings at work that you don't want to be at things like that. We never make time for ourselves and then going through with the workbook. And I did that for each of the books. Um, it's a place where the parent and the child both have somewhere where they can answer these questions. And if they don't have time to do it together, they can come back and they always have that opportunity to go back and look at it. For me, especially with the PTSD stuff, explaining it to my son was difficult. And I never knew all the time how to answer stuff. So I would think about it, come back and respond to it. That gives folks the opportunity to reflect on stuff, write down the answers, and then they can set the book down. And even if they're not home, the kid can come along and look at it and see. 
And I did that for both of the other books as well, just different questions, you know, like with the, the bullying and the um, body image stuff, because that's hard for kids to talk about. Even as teenagers, it's hard to talk about. Giving them the opportunity to write down what do they like about themselves? What do they not like about themselves and why? And getting them to have it on paper where they can then go back a couple of days later and see it and it will give them a different perspective on it. Journaling is something that I push a lot and try to get people to do. And I know for me, even though I did peer support for 20 some years, I could always help people with their issues. But when it came to my own, they could be right in front of my face and I couldn't see them. And I had a counselor once that's like, write this stuff down, set it aside and go back a couple of days later and look at it. And it's like, you're looking at somebody else's issue. And it makes it easier to reflect on it and figure it out. And because Amazon was like, oh, it's got to be this many pages. We can't publish it. So I was like, all right, now I got to figure out what to do. And I came up with that and it just kind of stuck. And I went with it on the other, on the other books. So, well, JP, I don't know if you're planning on bringing that book with you when you go and do this 48 hour resiliency, but you know what? I think that sometimes as adults, we need simple words. And those are such beautiful words. I would recommend, if you're not thinking about it, to bring that book with you and make that part of your time there, because I think those are great. And it's just simple words, I think, is what we need. And it's beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that. It really is. What can you tell us that we need to do as Americans to help our veterans and first responders? What can I do? What can my neighbor do? How can we help? First of all, with everything that's going on in this country, remember that they are no different than anybody else. And I, I think the narrative that you see go out a lot is a very small group of people. We have bad people in our groups. Every group does. But remember, these are people just like you and I that are going out. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to support a family. Talk to them. You know, the, the little things like somebody coming up and thanking you for doing your job you're always, everybody's going to be like, Oh, it's my job. It's what I do. Thank you. That means so much. That simple little thing. Um, when I was in uniform and out doing stuff every day, I remember every time I would stop to get coffee, I started keeping teddy bears in my trunk of my cruiser because every time I would stop to get coffee on the way in, some little kid would run up and they would look at you like you were this great superhero. And, you know, as adults, we forget about all this stuff and, I don't want anybody, I don't want any adult looking at me like I'm some superhero, but look at me like I'm no different than you are. I just want to go do my job and I want to come home and I want to protect people. That day at the Pentagon, we're running in there. Everybody else is running out. That's what we do. We don't think about it. We just do it. I think people don't think a lot about how difficult the job is. I've heard a lot where, oh, it's what they signed up for. We signed up to do a job because we want to help people. We didn't sign up to get killed. Um, and then, you know, you've got our vets that are going overseas for six, seven, eight, nine a year away from their families. You know, if you're in a community, gather around those families and remember that they're missing somebody right now. Our families, when we're first responders, they don't know when we walk out the door if we're going to come home at night. They're going over there for a year, sometimes longer than that. And half the time they can't hear from them all the time and they have no idea what's going on. 
um, when I went through the Boulder Crest program and there were six of us in this group, I was the only one that was not a military vet. And I remember the first day I said, I don't feel like I belong here. And those guys said, we go out and we get, we get deployed for six, seven months at a time. And they're like, you're out doing this stuff every day. And we need to remind each other that we're all in this together. You know, if you're in a community and you've got first responders, don't treat them any differently than don't treat them like they're special. We're, we're not special. You're not going to find any, any first responder that tells you that they're special is in the wrong job. We, cause we would go out and do our job for free. We would run into a building. We would run towards gunfire. It's, it's, it's in us. It's we're called to this job. I don't think anybody goes through life and wakes up one day and goes, Oh, I think I want to go do this job. that doesn't pay me any money and I'm going to get shot at all the time. <laughs> nobody does that. There's a calling for this. And for the military, you, you wake up and I was going to go into the Marine Corps and I got rear-ended at stoplight and I couldn't go in because of that, because whatever with the recruiter worked out for me, but my desire was to be a Marine. Do you want to be treated like everybody else? talk to them. I wish people could get back to that day after 9-11. Yeah. Because now everybody's so angry about everything. You can't have a conversation. Remember when we got attacked and how everybody was bringing each other food. I went to New York City. It was for New Year's after 9-11 going into 2002. And even the people in New York City in Times Square who usually would be elbowing you in the head we're like, oh, hello, how are you? Thank you. I mean, it was like the Twilight Zone because I'd gone up there the year before and I was getting elbowed by old ladies trying to get into a store. But it was like, if we <laughs> could get back to that point, it would be amazing to just treat people like human beings. There was a guy, I can't remember the comedian's name that was on the New Year's Eve thing. He was like, this is not about one party or another party. It's not about one race or another race. He's like, don't be an asshole. Yeah. And now if you That's have a different opinion, is. you can't sit down and be friends, right? Even family members, you can't told my students, you know, we're going to come in here and I may say something that you don't agree with and don't really care, but I expect you to challenge me on it, but I expect you to challenge me with facts and I expect you to challenge me respectfully and I will listen to you and you may change my opinion about stuff, but we're going to have a conversation because everybody seems to have forgotten this. I had a lady came up to me after the, um, the Trump Clinton election. I'm sitting doing my, um, I'm finishing up my master's. And she comes up to me and goes, you look like somebody that voted for Trump. And I was like, oh, I was like, this is not, and we're the only ones. And I'm like, this is not going to be good. So she's like, do you mind if I sit down with you? Cause I'm curious as to why. And I still, I had not told her who I voted for, yeah. but I'm like, all right. So we talked for, it was probably two hours about our differences with our opinion, why we voted for who we voted for. Yeah. And it was a great conversation. Then you go to family gathering and holy crap, if you said something, I got told before dinner, don't bring up the election. So of course my sister-in-law, she did. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever, but it, you had like world war three breakout at the, at the Thanksgiving table. And it's like, oh. what, there, you used to be able to have conversations about stuff and we can't do that anymore. This is America, and, right? Yeah. You had had one of the questions I saw that you were going to ask was like, what does America mean to you? And I was going to be like, do you mean before election or after election? What? And I, people get so caught up in this stuff. It's a very small percentage of people that are doing all the bad stuff. If you can walk out of your house, you know, you see somebody coming down the street, say hello. 
you see somebody that looks like they're having a bad day, say, hey, it looks like you're having a bad day. Are you doing all right? And actually listening or when you walk by in the office and you're like, how are you doing? Normally the person's all the way down the hall before you can answer them. Stay there for a second and, and listen. And I think if we get back to that point and looking at the world through the eyes of a child, I don't know what that point is. I hope for my kids, it's when they're 80, that they lose that curiosity and that just they want to be good people. And I hope that that comes very late for them. My son's already started to turn into a grown man and puff his chest out here and there. And so I think his is going to come sooner rather than later. But if we as adults took the time to ask questions and just sit back and kind of look at the world quizzically like a child does and ask questions about things versus making assumptions on our own, the world would be a much better place. If you stop like looking at somebody just going, oh, that person looks like they voted for Trump or that person looks like they voted for Hillary, you know, and just said, hey, how are you today? Oh, that's just, too funny. Just being a good person. That's, I, that's one of the reasons I grew my hair out. Now I've got like a, I have a mohawk like I used to have when I wrestled because I had a flat top at one point. And I guess that's why I look like I voted for Trump. I don't know, but I, so I'm trying to, you know, tone the image people down. People have a to bit. wonder, do I dare say going back facts don't care about your feelings? There's so many. I, 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 I walk into stores now and my wife will smack me and be like, don't open your mouth. Is that <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. Where can we find you on social media? Catalystofchangeassociates.com is my website. That has links to everything. Um, oh, good. Like your books and all of that? Books are on okay. there. Um, cool. My videos are, I've got, I think I've got to go back in and link my, if you go on YouTube, if you look up Wayward Path of the Warrior, that's the podcast that I'm doing. You have a podcast? And so I started doing this podcast. Here comes and the I'm explanation. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing. I'm looking at these people doing podcasts. I'm like, man, this can't be that hard. I'm gonna start doing it. So the first one, I think I recorded it 15 or 20 times between oh. me throwing things around and cursing, and and I'm too cheap to pay somebody to do all the editing and stuff. I do my own editing. That's what takes the longest. Yeah. So I'm I'm like, this can't be that difficult. And I'm going through, and I'm like, what? The, I got to write a script. I got to do this. I got to invite people. So hey, it was supposed to start. Yeah. Why do you think I do it this way where I have guests come on? Yeah, the, I'm slow. I've been punched in the head too many I times. I don't have to say a whole lot. And that way I don't have to have a script and you do all the talking. Brilliant. Well, according to Chris Thorpe, I talk far too much. So I thought I was made for this. So what's so, it called again? Wayward? The Wayward Path of the Warrior. So do you have some out then? I've got some with just me on there. Okay, but you do have some out. Yeah. And I've started doing this year, I got back to doing the daily videos. So when I get done tonight, I'm going to do the first one I did was like 30 minutes and I had to stop it and I re-recorded it and turned it to 10. I was like, I'm talking too much again. So I'm doing the daily videos because when we did the weighted ruck stuff, I just, it opened up for a lot of conversation with people and a lot of other people started talking about stuff. So I wanted to get back into doing that. Um, and then I'm going to send out while I'm sitting at home, because I still got three to four months left before my knee is fully back to normal. I'm, I'm going to get, I think it's Calendly is the name of the. Yes, that's what I used for you. So I've got it set up. I just got to send the invites out and I'll get people on here. And I've got 
I think I got 15 people have already said they would do it. It's just me getting off my butt and sending so things is this, out. Is your podcast, does it have to do with PTS? Um, you know who Tim Ferriss is? No. Tim Ferriss, <laughs> he's got a book called Tribe of Mentors. And he interviews people that he finds interesting. Oh, gotcha. And he said, if people find them interesting, great. If nothing else, I learned something from it. So I was like, I like that. So I'm okay. The people that have crossed my path and made an impact on me, like Doug Monda, um, Karen Solomon from Blue Help. Those are the people I'm going to bring on here. Jim Bricker, because they, they did so much for me. And I think their stories will help other people. And if nobody else gets anything out of it, I get a nice conversation with some awesome people. And, you know, that makes me happy. It sounds amazing. And I, I love being the person that just sits and listens to your stories. Yep. Well, then, you know how I'm going to finish this up. What does America mean to you? Hmm. I, I am still going to go with the pre-election stuff because to me, this is the greatest country ever. It provides us with so many freedoms to be able to do whatever we want to do for the most part. It provides all these people that complain about it, the opportunity to complain about it. It's because of the men and women that go out and defend this country every day. I'm in the process. I'm taking a course now on the constitution and going back into all that and I'll send you the link when I get it. Cause I just, I bought the whole thing and it's just been awesome listening to it to remind me about everything from the start of the country. And I still think at the end of the day that this is all going to come out good and that we're still going to be able, cause I haven't seen any of this hatred in law enforcement. I don't see it where I'm at the day that I told you where I went back to full duty at the Marine Corps marathon it was right around, I think it was right around the same time as Ferguson happened. And there was people walking by my cruiser, like, don't listen to this crap. We love you guys. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, when I stopped to get coffee, same thing. I haven't seen it. I'm, I know it's out there, but I haven't seen it. it. It doesn't change anything that I do. I got into what I do because I love helping people. And I have always been drawn to that. Even as a little kid, I used to be a safety patrol. I was safety patrol. Yeah. And you used to stand and salute the officers when they drove by. And it was the coolest thing ever. Now, I don't even know if they have safety patrols anymore, but that was like, the. I remember when I got my belt with the little badge, I was like, this is the I coolest thing ever. Yeah. Was it white with a silver? Ours was orange. Okay. Ours was white with the silver little badge. <laughs> yeah. But we had, we had like a big, it looked like a police badge. So oh, I was like, wow. this is the coolest thing ever. I had back then I wanted to do this and my uncles all had buddies that were cops. So I got to see them all the time. Um, I got to do some ride alongs. I had a guy that lived in the court that I did when I was growing up and he took me on ride alongs all the time and talked to me about all this stuff. So I got to see all the good people that were doing this stuff. And back then there was so much respect for the job. Um, and just, there was respect for everything across the board, politics, every people respected it. Um, and I'm hoping that one day we get back to that. I think at the core of what this country is about, it's still there. Um, I think you have a lot of people that are not talking now out of fear of being labeled something, or they're just like, I don't care if these people like me or not. And that's kind of the boat I'm in. I, 
I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. And if you don't like it, there's the door, there's a switch, turn it off. Don't listen to me. I don't care. But if one person is helped by it, I did my job. I have that opportunity because of how great this country is. And you look at some of these countries around the world. If you spoke out against the president or the, whatever they call their leaders, they'd kill you and you'd be gone. If you came out and, you know, spoke about what was on your mind about a political issue or just anything in general, you'd disappear. I, I don't know why all of a sudden people have had this thought that we need to change everything that's going on here because it's the, they're missing the point that the same reason they're able to run their mouth and talk about all this stuff is because of the freedoms that we have. And they talk about all the first responders and they talk about these military men and women who go out and put their life on the line each and every single day to make sure that Bob down the street who wants to talk about all this stupid crap and about how horrible this country is, is able to do it and sit in his basement on his keyboard and do it while we're out doing all this stuff. And while we're having getting shot at, yelled at, spit on, I, I don't even want to imagine half the stuff that these men and women deal with overseas and being apart from their family for months and years at a time so that folks can be able to be keyboard warriors and do whatever. But that's what, that's what makes this country great is everybody's allowed to have an opinion. And you almost, when you're walking around now, you almost have to laugh and keep a good sense of humor about it. Cause if you don't, you go crazy. I try to tell that to my students. I try to tell that to the new officers coming in, to the people that I work with. People will come and talk to me about stuff. I try to be funny when I can. I get a lot of reviews when I speak where they're like, oh, the guy didn't smile. Well, yeah, I'm talking about shooting myself in the head. So probably not going to laugh about that. But other times, like if you talk to me off the thing, I will, I, a lot of times I talk about my trips to Walmart. It's like your own reality show. You can't go wrong with it. So, you know, you're having a bad day, go to Walmart, just sit on the little thing by the greeter and watch the people walking around and you will feel better by the end of the day. Go on TikTok. I refuse to get on TikTok for the longest time. My chief starts sending me TikTok videos. Now, three hours later, my wife's like, you're still on there. I'm like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> because at the end of it, I feel better about myself. Which just goes to prove that America is the greatest country because those people on TikTok, it's the only country in the world where you can be a millionaire doing that. My kids following these, there's some, I think this kid's in Australia, this is a couple of years ago. He's like eight years old opening food and the kid made $15 million. Like I'm in the wrong job. Hey, we're going out, we get shot at all this stuff. You got to go overseas and be apart from everybody. You're making like maybe 50 grand if you're lucky. And then you get back and you retire and they're like, oh, here's your cake and your stupid shadow board. Congratulations. Good job. See you in 50 years. And nobody talks to you anymore. Yet this little goofball that's on there is making all this money for doing stupid stuff. And my kids think they're the greatest people. And I'm like, how am I not making this money? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I totally get it. Well, JP, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you Likewise. so much for sharing your American story. JP, thank you for being honest and for the in-depth conversation we had regarding PTSD and the trials that our first responders and veterans go through that have allowed us to be safe. 
If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave rating, leave a review, let your family and friends know about We the People, Our American Story podcast. Next week, my guest will be Adam Francis. We the People, Our American Story, the podcast for Americans who love America.